This is our reading from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malone and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her God. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Well, good morning. My name is uh, Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at North Sea. I'm actually the campus pastor of our East Abbotsford campus. Uh, if you haven't been there uh, yet and you live on that side of town, I'd love to see you. Even if you don't live on that side of town, it'd be great to have you over there at some point. Uh, I asked Kendra to read that passage in, in one uh, go because we're starting our sermon series in the, the book of Ruth. 
And uh, it's a story, it's one story that's supposed to be read in, in one sitting. And it's a, it's a compelling story. It's a story that I actually think could be summarized best by uh, the words of a guy named William Cowper. Uh, William Cowper was a, a poet from the 18th century. He, uh, he was an elite poet. He was well-known. Uh, people loved his work, even though he was a bit of a recluse. He lived out uh, in kind of uh, the burbs of 18th century uh, England. And uh, his story as, as, a, as a man started very, very uh, sadly, actually. When he was a little boy, when he was six years old, his mother passed away. And that loss wrecked him and stuck with him in a very deep way and as he grew older, his father actually sent him to a boarding school. And uh, at the boarding school, not only was he missing his mother who had passed away, but increasingly he was desperately missing his father as well. Loneliness and pain and sorrow was such a regular part of William's life. But man, was he a gifted writer. He was so skilled. And yet he was deeply, deeply sorrowful, so much to the point that he actually attempted his own life, attempted to take his own life in, in multiple occasions. But he met a pastor by the name of John Newton. Newton was a pastor in his town, and Newton saw his, his brilliance in his writing, and he knew that he loved the Lord, and even though there was such great sorrow that oppressed him every single day, Newton wanted to mobilize this guy's skill to, to serve the church, and so he asked Cowper to be involved in writing a hymnal that Newton was working on. Newton's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, so he's written a few good songs in his day. William Cowper wrote a poem that's been set to music throughout the years. There's no one dominant melody that's stuck, but the lyrics are, are beautiful. They go like this. The song's called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. It says, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. That line, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face, I think is a fantastic summary of the book of Ruth. We're gonna spend the next four weeks looking at this book. My encouragement to you is over the next four weeks that we're studying this, this book, would you, at least once in the week, would you just sit down and read the whole story cover to cover? It's four chapters, it'll take probably 15, 20 minutes for you to do it, but if you do that, I, I promise when you come and you hear the next chapter being preached from, there, there's going to be moments where you'll see the foreshadowing and you'll see the beauty of the literature. It's a piece of art, the book of Ruth, and so we wanna work through it in the next four weeks, and today we're gonna start in chapter one, as we probably should if we're gonna start the book somewhere. And as we look at this chapter, we're gonna notice two things, a part of this part of the story, act one of the book of Ruth. We're gonna see two things. First of all, that there's evidence of heavy sorrows. And secondly, there's evidence of signs of hope. So we're gonna walk through Ruth chapter one, and in this story, we're gonna see evidence of heavy sorrows and also signs of hope. So let's start by looking at uh, the evidence of the heavy sorrows that the book of Ruth uh, is, is uh, initiated with. So Ruth uh, chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. They, they went 
to Moab and, and lived there. So if we're gonna understand the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth well, we have to understand where the story actually begins. And actually the story doesn't begin with Ruth, the story begins with someone named Naomi. Actually the first chapter of Ruth isn't about Ruth hardly at all, it's about Naomi. It's about her journey as, a, as an Israelite woman. And if we're gonna understand this story well, we have to recognize that the story in Ruth chapter one is really an accumulation of sorrows. It's as if Naomi has a backpack on and over the course of her life, weight after weight of heavy sorrows and burdens get placed into the backpack that she wears on the journey of her life. The first weight that's placed in her backpack is the fact that she lives in the time of the judges. So the time of the judges uh, was this, the point in Israel's history where uh, Israel was a nation in, in Egypt. They were a bunch of slaves. They were, they were being oppressed by the Egyptians and they were calling out to the Lord to be delivered. And through Moses and other things, plagues, all kinds of stuff, he got them out of Egypt. They crossed over the Red Sea on dry ground and they were faced with the land that the Lord said, I'm gonna give you this land to be my people and I'll be your God. And they look at the land, there's people in the land. And they say to themselves, look, I know God found a way to defeat the, heart, the, the biggest, baddest empire on the, on the land, but it's too hard for us to go in there. So they rebelled against God's plan and God said, okay, here's the deal. The generation that said we can't go in the land, we're gonna wait till you all die and then you'll get to inherit the promised land. So over the years, the people that rebelled against God and didn't go into the promised land the first time started passing away, which by... By the way, could you imagine the awkwardness of being one of the last people of that generation? People coming up to you, how you feeling, Bill? <laughs> Great. And they're like, okay, I guess we'll wait. The last person from that first generation of rebellion had to die, and then once that person passed, they went into the promised land. But before they had their own kingdom, they... They didn't have one, one king. Instead, they lived in the time known as the judges, where there was this cycle of what's known as the cycle of apostasy, this cycle of turning away from God that took place in the time of the judges, where, where they, would, they would be in a time of freedom and worshiping God, but then they would be drawn away to worship the other gods of the lands of their neighbors, and they would sin, and the sin would bring consequences, and the Lord would... Uh, bring punishment upon them, and the people would cry out to God for deliverance. God would send a judge to deliver them, and then they'd be in another time of freedom and peace, but then they would start to worship the other gods, and there's this cycle of apostasy. The time of the judges was a time of upheaval, chaos. That's a burden in your backpack, right? Every day you wake up, what's it gonna look like for the next few weeks? Is it gonna be a stable time or not? Actually, the whole surrounding area at this time, the, the whole ancient world was in a bit of a chaotic turn. Some of the known biggest empires of the day, the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians and the Greeks, they were either in decline or upheaval themselves. The time of the judges was a time of massive socio-political upheaval and unease. That's a burden to bear. It's not the only burden that Naomi had to bear. She also had a famine in her land. There's no food anymore. Bethlehem means the, the place of bread. <laughs> There's no food in the place of bread. That adds some weight to the backpack, doesn't it? And because there's no food, now she has to take up the life of an immigrant. So here's this young mom with her husband. She's leaving behind her village. She's leaving behind her friends and family. She's leaving behind everything she's ever known for the sake of, per, uh, of finding food and a hope and a future in a different land. And now she wears the backpack of an immigrant woman. 
sorrow after sorrow, burden after burden being placed on her in the midst of a very turbulent time, but the weights are only gonna get heavier. Verse three, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Not, not only is Naomi an immigrant in a different land, she's away from her people, she's in the land of Moab, but now she's in the land of Moab and her husband has died. She goes through life, we don't know for how long she goes through life, but she goes through life as a single mom, hoping her, husband, her, her sons find wives, and eventually they, they do, and she goes to the weddings, and she you know, she's, has the dress, and they're cutting the cake, and she's taking the pictures, and it's a celebratory day, but at the same time, she's remembering to herself that this day would have been sweeter had her husband been there. Now her sons are married to two women, Orpah and Ruth. It's not Oprah, by the way. Orpah and Ruth. And at some point, her sons die. More weight gets added to her back. She's an immigrant woman. She's away from her home and her family, everything she's ever known. And now she's grieving the loss of the people closest to her. So heavy sorrows. But they get heavier, actually. Ruth 1, verse 5, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. See, we need to understand that in the ancient world, that's not just grieving the loss of loved ones like we've all done, but that's grieving the loss of loved ones with no future potential way to have stability in your life. See, in the ancient world, if you were a woman, you were dependent on your husband and sons to provide for you. So not, not only is Ruth grieving, but she has no hope for ha having provision and protection come her way. Desperately alone. She has no ID, no credit cards, no cash, no security, no provision. She's overwhelmed. Those are heavy sorrows in that backpack. But look, isn't that the way sorrows go? You know that the way life is is that it's never just one bad thing that happens, right? Like when it rains, it pours, right? It's not like living here in Abbotsford. When it rains, it's like a mist that's just hanging in the air. It's like living in other parts of the world where it's sunny all the time, but then when it rains, man, does it pour and it's flooding the streets with your sorrows. This is the only redeeming point of country music, by the way, Right? is that they get this part right. They, they recognize that it's not just that you lost your job, it's also that your dog died, your girlfriend left, and your truck died. You have nothing. That's the only good part of country music. <laughs> is that it accurately reflects the nature, the real nature of human sorrow, which is that it never just comes in ones, it comes in bunches. Naomi is feeling the heavy sorrows of real life, so much so that when she sees people that she knows, they say, Naomi, we see you. And she says in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord's brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord's afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi, in this section, she's playing on, on the, it's a play on words. Her, her name means pleasant. Mara means bitter. She's like, don't call me pleasant. You see me come home to Bethlehem and 
You're saying, oh, it's Pleasant's back. Don't call me that. It's bitter. My name's bitter now. She's living in the midst of the heavy sorrow. She's looking through the photos of her life. She sees the pictures of her dating her husband. She sees the pictures of her engaged to her husband. She sees the pictures of the wedding day. She sees photos of her boys being born. She's looking through the photo album of her life. Even the photos when she has to leave as an immigrant, she's thinking to herself, at least we were together. Then they arrive to a new land and her husband is dead and now she's looking at the wedding photos of her sons who married Moabite women and she's thinking, my husband should have been there. And now she's looking at photos from her son's funerals. And people say, welcome back, Pleasant. And she says, that's not my name. That's not my story. Naomi's living in the midst of heavy sorrows. The story of Naomi is actually a reminder of the reality of sorrow. This is the human experience. The question is not, will we experience suffering in our life? The question is, how are we going to experience the suffering in our life? We have all kinds of ways we we try to answer that question. One of the most common approaches is through distraction. We just ignore the sorrows around us. Things happen to us and we refuse to engage in them and think about them and process them and recognize that they're there. We, we blind ourselves from the fact that our life will one day end. We, we distract ourselves from the reality of our own demise. This is the Netflix and chill approach, right? Which, by the way, that phrase doesn't mean like just watch Netflix and then hang on your house. So if you have young adults and you're a parent, don't say, let's have a family night, Netflix and chill. Don't do that. But Netflix and chill is basically saying, let's consume the entertainment to to distract ourselves, and now let's do something else, sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever, to actually give us something that feels good to mask the pain. We don't deal with sorrows very well. We mostly just distract ourselves from them. Or we achieve our way through it. We say, man, there's all kinds of sorrows in my life, but I'm just going to throw myself into my work. I'm going to throw myself into my education. I'm going to throw myself into my family. I'm, I'm going to distract myself through achievement. There's another way that we deal with suffering that's not ideal. It's kind of a quasi-Christian way. It's, it's stumbling through life as though we're burdened by false guilt. See, some of us operate with the mentality that every time we suffer, it's necessarily because we've sinned. So don't get me wrong, the reason why they're suffering is because of sin, but that doesn't mean that necessarily every time you suffer, it's because of a particular sin. Some suffering comes as a consequence of sin, but not all suffering is necessarily a response or a consequence of a particular sin. When I was in uh, grade 11 through my college years, uh, I had all kinds of like stomach issues, right? Some, Some days were no big deal, other days, completely debilitated with cramping and all kinds of just awful stuff. I went to doctor after doctor and did all kinds of tests and take this herb and do this thing and poke this needle and the whole bit, right? After all the years of testing, the doctors came to me and they said, okay, here's the deal. You have irritable bowel syndrome. And I said, that's not a diagnosis because I told you I have an irritable bowel. <laughs> so you just put syndrome at the end. That doesn't count. One of the days that was particularly bad when I was struggling with this, I was working at a local restaurant. I won't use the name. Let's call it the Bluebird Restaurant. And I was there as a busboy, 
And uh, my boss, Christian Mann, came up to me and he knew I was struggling and actually asked him if it was okay if I snuck away from my shift early because the cramping was just really terrible that day. And he said, uh, you can go back, you can go home early, but here's the deal. We gotta find the, the sin that's causing this. Like there's gotta be something, Greg. You don't just suffer for no reason. There's gotta be some particular sin that's causing all of this pain in your life. Now look, there are pains in our lives caused by sin, but that doesn't mean that every time we suffer is necessarily because of a particular sin. And if we believe that every time we suffer, it's because we've sinned, we can stumble through our suffering with a false guilt. Thinking to ourselves that this is a punishment for something and trying to find that particular th thing. So look, if, if we're not supposed to walk through our suffering with false guilt or just by distracting ourselves through amusement or achievement, then how are we supposed to walk through suffering? Actually, I think Tim Keller answers that question really well. It's because the question is not how or not will we experience suffering, but how will we experience it? And in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he says these words. He says, the walking metaphor points to the idea of progress. Many ancients saw adversity as merely something to withstand and endure without flinching or even feeling until it goes away. Modern Western people see suffering as something like adverse weather, something you avoid or insulate yourself from until it passes by. The unusual balance of the Christian faith is seen in the metaphor of walking through darkness, swirling waters, or fire. We're not to lose our footing and just let the suffering have its way with us, but we're also not to think we can somehow avoid it or be completely impervious to it either. We're to meet and move through suffering without shock and surprise without denial of our sorrow and weakness, without resentment or paralyzing fear, yet also without acquiescence or capitulation, without surrender or despair. The way we engage our suffering, dear friends, is by walking through it. You wake up and you put one foot in front of the other. We walk through it. Ruth 1 makes clear that heavy sorrows is a reality of the human experience and Christians don't distract themselves from it and they don't live in false guilt for it. They just walk through it. Have you ever witnessed a, a, a Christian person walk through a life of suffering with just a, a grace to them? You know their story you know the chronic pain that they deal with, either it's physical or emotional or mental. It, it's something, you know it, but when other people watch them, they wouldn't think to themselves that that person is suffering because they just keep going every day. It doesn't mean they don't have bad days. It doesn't mean there aren't days when they break down and cry, but there is a determination to them. There's a grit. They wake up, they keep going. They don't deny that their pains are there, but they also refuse to feel forgotten by God in the midst of it. They just wake up, and in the midst of heavy sorrows, they walk through their suffering. The question is, how can you actually do that? How can you live not denying the reality of your suffering, but refusing to forget or, or, or to think that God's forgotten you in the midst of your suffering? How, how do you do that? Well, I think this passage will show us, secondly, that there's signs of hope. So Ruth 1, remember, it's mostly about Naomi, this story. And the story continues in verse six. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, 
she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your own mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find in the rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. I think this passage actually shows us two, two signs of hope. The first sign of hope, man, there's food back in Bethlehem. Right, remember, Naomi's an immigrant woman. She left from Bethlehem to go to Moab because there was no food in the house of bread. So she went to Moab, and while in Moab, she lost everything. But now she hears news that, man, back where I'm from, where my family and friends all are, there's food back there again. That's a sign of hope. She can go back home. She can find food. And the picture in her mind is that she tells her daughters-in-law, okay, come, come with me. We're gonna go back to where I'm from, where there's gonna be food, and maybe we'll make some connections there. And they're on the journey, carrying the backpack of their sorrows with them. When at some point on the journey, Naomi turns to her daughters-in-law and she says, here's the deal. You guys gotta go back. Now, when we first read that, that seems like a weird move on Naomi's part, right? Seems kind of like a jerk move. Like, I don't want you anymore. But actually, I don't think we're supposed to read her comments to her daughters-in-law as a, an aggressive act or an unfriendly act. I actually think it's the most kind thing that she thought she could do. Two, two reasons why I think it was a really kind intention for Naomi to tell her daughters to go back. The first one I think the reason it was kind is she, she keeps heaping blessings on them. She, she doesn't just say, ah, go back. I don't want you. I'm bored with you. She says, go back because, man, I hope God blesses you there. I hope the Lord provides for your every need. I hope my God, Yahweh, provides for you. Go back. I hope he blesses you. Second reason, though, is more of a historical reason. We can't forget that Orpah and Ruth are Moabite women. Moabite widows, actually. See, Naomi knows what it's like to enter into a different land as an immigrant and have everyone recognize that you're not from around here. She doesn't want that same experience for her, da her daughters-in-law. Moabite women aren't particularly popular with the Israelite boys. So what future would these Moabite immigrant women have in Israel? But that actually leads to our second sign of hope that this passage points out. Because even though she's like, don't come with me, her daughters-in-law say, no, no, we're coming. You're not gonna go alone. We're gonna go with you back to where you're from. See, there's signs of hope. There's food, there's companionship. Even in the midst of heavy sorrows, there are signs of hope. But Naomi actually doesn't stop there. See, later on in, in the passage, she tells them, no, no, look, you can't come with me because my life is gonna be really terrible there because I have no prospect for a future. Remember, I can't provide for myself. I have no husband, no sons. I'm, I'm too old to get married. And she even says, look, if, if I had the opportunity to give you husbands, it's not gonna happen. There was a, a law in the people of Israel called the Leverite law, where if you had a a husband who passed away, the brother of that husband was supposed to step in and marry his sister-in-law for the purpose of providing for her and protecting her because without that provision and protection, she would be completely destitute. Her future would be prostitution. Naomi's saying to her daughters-in-law, look, I'm not gonna be able to produce any more sons in time for you guys to be provided for. 
And no one in Israel is gonna wanna marry Moabite women. You have a better shot of actually having a future and a hope that I hope the Lord gives you if you just go back home. So with tears in her eyes, she pleads with her daughters-in-law to go back home. And then in Ruth 1, verse 14, at this, they, the daughters-in-law, wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. See, the same pleading, don't come with me, there's no hope for you in Israel, no hope for you in Bethlehem, no one's gonna marry you, you're gonna end up as prostitutes. That same pleading has two different responses, a logical and an illogical one. Orpah responds logically. She sees the situation before her and she knows, uh, I'm not gonna be able to find a husband. And if I don't have anyone to protect me as an immigrant in a different land, I'm gonna end up a prostitute. So even though she loves Naomi, she, with tears in her eyes, hugs her mother-in-law and goes back home where there's at least a chance at a future. But Ruth makes the illogical choice. See, she, it's a harder deal for her to go with Naomi than to go back home. But the reason why Ruth chose Naomi is, is not only the fact that she, she loves her mother-in-law. R- Ruth is willing to go through the racial tensions, the potential for loneliness, the, the, uh, the likelihood that she won't be provided for and will have to end up going into prostitution because of the great uh, declaration she makes to Naomi when she says that where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Here's a Moabite woman saying, I'm a follower of Yahweh now. I'm going with you. And Naomi, even though she doesn't know what the future holds, finally allows her daughter-in-law to continue the journey on back to Bethlehem with her. See, there's signs of hope. There's food to come. There's companionship there. So they enter, verse 19, the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Heavy sorrows for Naomi. But also signs of hope. They're coming back to Bethlehem during the barley harvest. Food's there. She's not by herself. Ruth is there. What's interesting about this story, though, is that Naomi doesn't actually recognize these signs of hope. See, if you choose to take up the Ruth challenge and read it actually once a week for the whole time we do this sermon series, you would notice things like how in verse 22, it's a beautiful, delightful little foreshadow of the hope yet to come. 
The fact that Naomi has Ruth with her and it's at a barley harvest, you'd read the story and you'd start giggling like, oh, it's gonna get good. But Naomi doesn't see that things are about to get good. She doesn't see the signs of hope. So I actually wanna engage with that idea that there are two signs of hope, that there's food and also that she has companionship, but Naomi doesn't see it. So, So let's think about that for a minute. First of all, let's think about the fact that even though in the midst of the heavy sorrows, Naomi forgets that Ruth is clinging to her. So imagine you're Ruth. You make a bold proclamation to say, I'm gonna go wherever you go. I'm now following Yahweh. And you continue the journey back to Bethlehem. You arrive in Bethlehem and everyone's so excited to see Naomi. And they're like, it's amazing, you're back. It's incredible. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. I got nothing. God gave me nothing left. And Ruth is standing there. You're thinking to yourself, "Uh, I'm here, mom. But Naomi forgot that actually an evidence of God's grace was clinging to her. Man, we are so much like Naomi. In the midst of our heaviest sorrows, we forget the evidences of God's grace clinging to us. Every month we have a staff meeting here at Northview and we make a habit of doing a thing in our staff meeting called Evidences of God's Grace where we, we go around the table and either in our own life or in our ministry life, we start talking about evidences that we see God's grace. It's a good habit. Because some months things are, going, things are going awesome. And other months they're not. But there are still evidences of his grace, yeah? Early in our marriage, uh, we were coached by a, a mentor couple who told us that when we pray together, Don't forget, in the midst of all of your pleadings for God to change situations for you to still recognize the evidences of his grace. Because even though our backpack is heavy with our sorrows, the evidences of his grace are still there. Look, those evidences of God's grace, the Ruth's clinging to us, don't actually erase our pain. The pain is still there, but at the same time, we have to be the kind of people who refuse to let our pain erase the evidences of God's grace still clinging to us. They're still there. Naomi didn't see it, we often don't as well, but there's another sign of hope in this part of the story. Actually, the sign of hope is that even in the midst of the heavy sorrows, Naomi doesn't see that there's a barley harvest. There's a big party for the barley harvest time, right? This is like the agri-fair of Bethlehem. Here's, here's Naomi, here's Mara, here's, here's Bitter coming into the middle of the agri-fair with snow cones and cotton candy and Ruth clinging to her saying, nothing's going my way. And they're like, sorry, we can't hear you. The country band's playing, right? Because country music's awesome. They're at the party, man. There's the, there's the beard oil table going on. There's the craft barley beverage thing happening there. Those scenes just bursting with happiness. This would have been an annual party, but imagine a party you'd throw after years and years and years of famine. And finally, there's food. There's bread back in the house of bread. Man, that's a good party. You'd bring in a big act. You'd bring in like Chris Tomlin for that party, right? (laughs) But Naomi can't actually see the celebration because she doesn't see outside of her own story. And man, we can relate with Naomi. Because our sorrows are are heavy and they weigh us down and we are so prone 
to just look and stare in the mirror of our own sorrows rather than look outside the window to see what else God is doing. We act like our story is the big story going on. But it's not. See, Naomi's problem is that she doesn't recognize that the barley scene is actually a scene of great hope. Look, as we go through the book of Ruth, you're going to see that barley is the most hopeful of all the grains. Not just because of the barley festival and the craft barley beverage table, but because of what Ruth will find in a barley field a little bit later in the story. So spoiler alert. Ruth is going to go into a barley field. She's going to see a person named Boaz. And through a series of events, that's a really good story. You should come back and hear it. Her and Boaz eventually get married and they have a son. Their son's name is Obed. And then Obed has a son and his name is Jesse. And Jesse has a son and his name is David. See, in the time of the judges, when everything's chaotic and everything's in upheaval and there's no sign of when stability will come, in walks a Moabite immigrant widow. See, we think as we're reading Ruth chapter one that the story's gonna be about Naomi, who's the Israelite immigrant widow in Moab. But actually the story is rightly called Ruth because the story's about a Moabite immigrant widow who comes to Israel. And through this Moabite immigrant widow, she'll have a husband. And through her family line will come the great king of Israel. And she'll meet her husband in a barley field. See, isn't barley great? It's a sign of hope. It's a sign that there's a bigger story than just Naomi's story. See, through Naomi's line, there's going to be a king who will come to protect his people, to provide for his people. Hope's coming. Naomi just can't see it quite yet. But we can relate to Naomi. We, we are prone to stare into the mirror of our own sorrows and never move our eyes out the window of what God's bigger story is. So how is it that Christians can walk through their suffering that they're wearing every single day, the way that they can do it is they stop looking in the mirror and they remember the big story of what God is doing. They remind themselves that their little story, as sorrowful and painful as it is, is a part of a bigger master story that God is writing. And here's the story. That in eternity past, God existed happily living in the land of the Trinity where he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't need anything else, but he chose out of his joy to show his own glory to create. And he created and he said, man, that's good. I like that. And then he decided, no, I'm gonna put actually some people in that creation. They're gonna run it for me. They're gonna enjoy what I created. They're my image bearers. He looks at them, he says, man, they're very good. But those image bearers look back at the God who created them and they say, but you're not very good. We actually think we'd be better off making the calls, calling the shots. And so they rebel against the God who's there, against the God who created them out of his joy for the demonstration of his glory. They say, no, we're gonna follow our own ways. And because of that, in comes suffering and sin. 
But man, this God who created so desperately wanted his image bearers to know what it was like to live and flourishing. And so he sent a king to provide for his people and protect them. A king through the line of Ruth the Moabite named Jesus. Who through his perfect life and his death on the cross provided the atonement that we need to be saved. And through his resurrection from the grave, he protects his people for an eternity. And now he looks to his people and he says, look, you have a future and you have a hope. There's a day when the creation that is here is going to be renewed and remade. It's going to be perfect. Again, you'll look at it and say it's very good and God will look at it and say it's very good, but it's even better than it was before. And our stories of sorrow are weaved into that greater story of hope. The only way we can walk through our suffering is by reminding ourselves of the bigger story. See, this past week, uh, my family has been ill, which is why I'm like dabbing my nose all the time. And uh, my daughter in particular, one-year-old, she had double ear infection at one point in the week. Tylenol's not helping, the fever's still spiking the whole deal. We have to go get antibiotics. There, there was one point in the week where, you, as a parent, right, you'll do anything to comfort your one-year-old, right? You'll dance, you'll play whatever game they wanna play. What my daughter found helpful was if I just held her and was singing to her. So I, I chose to sing, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But look, I'm also a pragmatist, because if baby beluga would've worked, man, I would've done it. But the reason I, I sing Jesus Loves Me over my kids in the midst of their hardest moments is because there are hard moments that are gonna come for my kids. And the song that I want going through their brain in the midst of their suffering is that Jesus loves them. Because the only way they'll be able to walk through the suffering of their life is if they remember the bigger story. Look, I know that pain is a part of our life. I, I was reminded of this very clearly in the early days of my son's life when we were spending time in BC Children's Hospital, not because of what he was going through necessarily, but in one, one of our stays there, we were in a room where there was four of us in a room divided just by curtains, right? And there was a girl in the same room that my son was in and her name was Lexi and my wife and I still think about Lexi all the time. It was probably about two and a half or so at this time. Man, smiley Lexi. She was born in that hospital and she had never left that hospital because of all the various health issues that she has. Sometimes she'd have her own room, sometimes she'd have to be in a room that was shared by other people. And we met her parents early on in the week and they asked us if we wouldn't mind if the curtain could be left open when they were gone because they had to go fly home. Because the husband had to go work and the wife had to be with the rest of their other kids. So Lexi would be in there day after day with no visitors, smiling away but also in great pain. See, there's pain out there. There's sorrow out there. My wife and I think about, man, where's Lexi at now? And I wonder how her parents are doing and what would it have been like to have to leave your kid at BC Children's Hospital for all those days in a row? I can't imagine. But there's not just pain out there. Look, I know there's pain here. There's anxiety, there's depression, there's addictions, there's despair, there's health issues, there's relationship fractures, there's deep grief over the loss of loved ones. Pain is 
the backpack we wear every day. But Jesus loves you, right? I'm actually uh, convinced that uh, one of the best things we can do as Christians is, is think about what new creation will be like. As I'm holding my daughter and singing to her, I think to my, I'm thinking to myself, I have to write a sermon, so if you could feel better, that'd be amazing. Um, but when I wasn't thinking that, I was thinking about what new creation would be like. I, I'm fairly convinced at this point that one of the regular things we'll do in eternity future is over nice cups of coffee on brisk mornings with just a light jacket on and the cool air in our face, we'll sit across from people and we'll ask them, what's your story? Before you got here, what was your story like? I'm, I'm praying that one of those days in eternity future, I'll be able to have a conversation over a cup of coffee with someone named Lexi. I'll be able to ask her, so what was your story? Another conversation I wanna have in new creation is with someone named Naomi. If I ever get the chance to have that cup of coffee with her, I would not be surprised if that she, she tells me her story, that she was an Israelite woman who was an immigrant in Moab, and she went with her husband and her two sons, but they all died. She came back to her land with one daughter-in-law named Ruth. And I would not be surprised if Naomi looked at me and she told me to judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let me pray for us. Father, you're good and your word is good and you remind us of your goodness, not always through our life situations, although there are evidences of your grace there, but you remind us of your goodness mostly in the person and work of your son, Jesus. Father, allow the good news of his life and death and resurrection and soon return and our hope yet to come, allow that news to just root in our hearts today. Draw our eyes away from the mirror of our own stories outside the window of the great gospel. Be with us by your spirit, Lord, we pray for your fame and in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.